Hi everybody, you're listening to the Rogue Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to our episode zero on safety and consent in rope before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We're rope partners who've been practicing together for around five years. We live in Bangkok and love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. Today's episode is sponsored by Friction Live. Friction Live offers a variety of kink classes, mostly centered around rope and things you can do to complement your rope, which you can follow along with from the comfort of your own couch, kitchen, bed, wherever you do rope. You can attend the class live or view it recorded at your convenience. Check them out on frictionlive.ca. Today, we're really happy to be talking to Alexiel, a rope switch active in the UK scene. Alexiel has a 24-7 DS relationship with her colored pet, Little Boy Blue, as his owner and dom. Although Alexiel and Little Boy Blue switch in rope regularly, Alexiel's rope education is diverse and includes Gestalta, Kinoko, Kurogami, with a current focus on wild Thai style. Alexiel is the presenter, along with Little Boy Blue, of the Diverse Bodies in Rope class, and we wanted to catch up with them about what this means and why it's important for all of us, riggers and bottoms, to be more aware of this topic. Welcome, Alexia. Hello, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. It is truly our pleasure. Alexia, to get us started, how did you first discover rope bondage? I've joined the BDSM scene uh, before I joined the rope scene. And through my first uh, dominant, I got into tying. And my tying at the beginning was very much decorative. Um, I started off very European with the uh, naughty boys. Mm-hmm. And I um, through that, I met... My partner, Little Boy Blue, we've met as practice partners for Wolf, so I could practice on him. And that quite quickly developed into a DS relationship. And our whole Wolf journey has been together, which has been really lovely. That's lovely. How many years have you two been tying together? Um, I think it's over seven years now. So, yeah, we started off with um, decorative Wolf, then... Um, mainly through books and tutorials, because at the time there weren't, there wasn't a rope community around at all in my area. Mm-hmm. And then we got some private lessons with Gestalta for um, Gortes and then moved to suspension um, at the beginning, very, very transition focus, which was really popular at the time, a lot of spinning. Um, but the transitions were actually really quite useful to manage comfortability and rope and you know because you could switch easily if something started hurting and um yeah that led us to to learning from kinoko um and about three years ago we started getting into a bit of a rope slump and i was starting kind of to question why i'm even doing rope um but then we took a class with ricardo wild ties on uh, narca style tying and uh had a huge, huge impact on our journey. It kind of got our love for war back. And um, I haven't really looked back since, just really thrown myself into the style and really loving it. You, you mentioned that you used to do a lot of transitions because that was the trend back then. Do you still incorporate a lot of transitions in your rope today? Um, 
not as heavily. The, my tying does depend heavily on who I tie with. So I pretty much exclusively tie with friends. And a lot of them have very diverse bodies, diverse backgrounds, and diverse tastes. Um, and who currently, uh, Wild Tester is my favorite. I do still do, um, whoop that's more focused on being comfortable. And I use frequent transitions for comfort in those still, but they're not so much fast transitions, uh, for play, but they're transitions to, um, make the bottom more comfortable and feel safe. So it's not the kind of circle style, it's a bit more slow. Very interesting. Why does the uh, wild tie style appeal to you at the moment? What is it about? I think I started focusing a bit much on the photography side of things and on shapes and on the final results of Warp, which led me to, you know, kind of not enjoy it as much anymore. But the wild tie style is very much the opposite. It's very much on focusing on your partner, on their reactions, on sensations, on the process. Yes, um, the aesthetics, there's still beauty and, you know, shapes do matter, but it's a lot more about the journey rather than you have to achieve X shape. And I find that much, much more enjoyable as a top. Um, and um, I find the connection I have with my wool bottoms um, much better in that style. Mm. So you mentioned um, tying a, a diverse range of friends and you're the um, presenter along with Little Boy Blue of the Diverse Bodies class. So tell us, what does it mean to tie diverse bodies? For me, it means tying people who all have different needs and sometimes different limitations. I, I think pretty much everybody is different. You will find very few people that are the same, but it's not something that gets focused on a lot. I mean, from the very beginning, me and my partner always kind of stuck out as a tying pair. Then I started going to workshops. Uh, my partner was always the only male and often the oldest warp bottom in, in a group. Um, and a lot of the time, ties were very much focused on needing breasts to stay in place, which um, is a little bit difficult um, if, if you're tying a more male body. And I've um, also tied, so a lot of my friends have diverse health conditions, um, affecting their mobility, um, affecting uh, things like sensations, having limited sensations, um, also things um, like that need consideration such as um, blood pressure, um, blood sugar levels. So it's a combination of people having very different shapes, which alter um, what ties you can use, but also what's comfortable for them, but also having other health conditions that have quite a quite an impact on how a scene goes and how things feel for them and um, on what is safe. Can you give us some examples of the techniques you use to adapt your ties to different bodies if if the body is not, for instance, someone who has breasts or someone who conforms to some imaginary standard of what 
the normal rope bottom is it very such a thing yeah i use for gortis i often adapt my third warp very heavily on the chest uh, i think it can so if you have a very long torso um i use additional webs to support the larger chest so for example for men um especially if it's a face down suspension it can be really really tough on the chest so adding extra webs at the top helps um for a lot of so i tie with a lot of women who are larger bodied and the same goes for myself if i bottom i use third ropes to anchor the top web to avoid sliding off round the shoulders you know with a larger chest um so things like that to just from a safety point of view as well as making it more comfortable um and i do tie with people who can't actually um really get their arms into a place for gortis um as well as people who don't really enjoy gortis so i've come up with variety of variations that help with that using uh for example hojo cuffs and and arm arm binders based on hojo cuffs to kind of still give that restrictive feeling at the back without putting as much stress on the shoulders um because with hojo cuffs you don't need the wrist to actually touch you can have some space between the wrist but still have the two wrists tied to each other is that right absolutely and i tend to go up diagonally to keep the tension going because it can be a little bit hard managing tension when limbs are very far apart and um but it still gives the rope bottom a nice sensation i find with a lot of arms free harnesses it gives you a very different feel i do use them um i also use um very early on i modified um the gorge to work as an arms and front gorge so i found that um quite that tends to work quite well for people who want a bit more like a hugging experience and who find face up suspensions more comfortable so i i use arms and front gorge is quite a lot for that i see you you mentioned larger bodies um do you find that it's better for larger bodies to use more wraps or to use a bigger size of rope or maybe both what's your experience with that from my experience both as a rigger and as a larger bottom i think more wraps actually often hinder things because tensioning more wraps so going around the body let's say Round the thigh four times rather than just twice, making sure that all four of those webs are evenly tensioned is very difficult, because if there is a lot of squish, it's not how do I put it? It's not necessarily all evenly spaced. There might be, if if you make the area that much broader, it's going to be difficult to to get a without um, folding onto each other. Mm-hmm. Um, tying squishy body parts the squish sometimes fights back a bit and you end up <laughs> with warp twisting or rolling on top of each other and that's far 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 more uncomfortable than just sticking with two wraps that are nice and tight and well tensioned and stay in place and don't twist 
Absolutely. So yeah, I think that's far better than using. Also the same with thicker rope, and you have to bear in mind with, with thicker rope, you then have to be more careful with nerves, you know, if it's bigger and you're more from, you know, if, if you have certain habits, bad to go with nerves, bigger rope then could affect that as well. And um, I think, I don't really think you need to um, change what rope you use or how many reps you use to tie a larger body, just you know, be, be mindful of the placement. And it might mean having to um, just, you know, kind of figure placement out together. I think every time you tie a new person, um, they will have slightly different pre um, preferences and their body will behave in a slightly different way. So you just have to experiment what works for that person. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us and you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. In that case, you would have a lab with that new partner before you tie them, let's say, in suspension? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I very rarely go straight into suspension with a new partner unless they have a lot of experience already and know from themselves where they like placements. But if it's somebody who's quite new to rope, um, I would always take it quite slow with floor work, um, kind of get to know um, each other, what we like, and also where placements work well. Um, that's even more so if they have more complex um, health issues that need managing. I think, you know, taking things slow um, make, often leads to much more enjoyable sessions than, you know, straight rushing into suspensions. So you mentioned different health conditions. In your experience, what are the health conditions that affect the rope bondage that you can do? So first of all, I think there are actually far more health conditions and far, far more people with those conditions um, than one might expect. Um, I've, I pretty much most rope bottoms I know have some sort of injuries or health conditions that affect their tying. Um, often um, when it comes to injuries, a lot of people have problems with their shoulders, um, just, you know, caused by day-to-day -day life, sports. And when it comes to health conditions, a lot of people... Um, have conditions that affect um, things like blood flow um, and circulation. So, for example, all types of diabetes affect the circulation. So I have diabetes too. And one of the things I struggle with is that I lose circulation really quickly in my legs and I lose feeling in my legs quite quickly, which I'm aware of, but obviously somebody who's not aware of this might, you know, it could be quite scary. Um, and the same with people um, who who have um, 
blood pressure issues, you know, things like temperature really affects things. Some people are prone to fainting quite suddenly because of this. Um, so that's things that definitely can be managed. Um, but, you know, you need to kind of keep an eye on it. And then there are also not just, you know, physical things like hypermobility affects things. Then there are conditions like uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which affects uh, things like the skin and connective tissue. So that sometimes comes with hypermobility. So that's things that, you know, have a very much a physical effect. Obviously, things like impairments that people have uh, restricted mobility, um, but also sensory impairments. You know, obviously, if somebody has hard of hearing, um, things like communications, so they have to change quite a bit. Um, and then everything uh, in regards to uh, neurodiversity. So people... Um, who, for example, have autism, the way they experience things and the way they communicate will be very different. Um, and again, it will be very individual to them. So those are all things uh, you kind of need to account for. And then obviously kind of things that affect people quite severely, like epilepsy, um, which adds risk to any type of play. And, you know, you just have to be a bit more prepared for things like that. And, and the goal is that we can allow all kinds of people with all kinds of health conditions to enjoy rope, right? And not say, you cannot do rope because X, Y, Z, but let's find a way to make you enjoy rope managing your X, Y, Z, right? Absolutely. And um, so far, I've not come across any condition where we couldn't adjust things in a way that's still, you know, made things enjoyable for the other person. And what tips would you give um, listeners to explore health conditions of the other person? What practical things can they do? I think the very first thing is talk openly about it. Um, I think it is changing. People are a lot more open about conditions um, and, um, you know, disabilities, but people still hide it. So making sure you create an environment where the other person is comfortable talking about those, both for the bottom and the rigger. I mean, my health conditions as a bottom also affect my rigging. You know, I have to be upfront with my bottom that um, I have diabetes and obviously I manage it, but, you know, they should know that I have it and that I'm neurodiverse and my communication will vary it. So I think being honest and communicating about it clearly is like the absolute first step. Um, and then I think taking things slowly and focusing on the fun. So don't think, oh no, they have X condition. It's now going to be really hard to tie them. It's change things slowly. You know, try something you're both comfortable with, something you know really well. Generally, the bed, more familiar you are with rope, you know, the, the more familiar you are with tension and things like that, it's easier to adjust things. So stick to something that you are familiar with, see how it works for your partner, and then adjust one thing at a time. So if something doesn't work, you can pinpoint exactly what the problem was. Um, and, you know, build a good communication during the scene, make sure the rope bottom understands 
that is okay to say something. They don't have to put up with things. It's okay to voice if there is a problem and make sure that if something goes wrong, don't blame each other. Be kind to each other. You know, it's a journey and, you know, with health conditions, it might mean it is a bit riskier. So be upfront that you're both happy with that risk. And if the vigor does make a mistake or does hurt or blood sugar levels drop, whatever, that you don't blame each other and you just go, okay, this happened. We analyze, you know, what and we'll try and obviously not have that happen again, but that there isn't any anger and blame involved because things will go wrong. It's how you, how you handle it. Yeah, that makes That makes so much sense. Alexia, you mentioned neurodiversity and people who might be on the autism spectrum. And even though there is more and more awareness of that these days, it might still be less familiar to our listeners than, say, physical conditions. So for those things that have to do with neurodiversity, what practical advice can you give in order to make rope more enjoyable by both parties? Um, for most neurodiverse people, um, we have a lot of sensory issues, which do vary from person to person. Um, so one of the biggest things that can help is making sure the environment um, is suitable. So, for example, for me, I struggle with very bright lights and very noisy environments. So rope jams are probably not the most ideal place for me to bottom for rope. So choosing an environment that is suitable to that person can already make a huge difference. Um, and also learning to read the other person. So neurodiverse people might struggle um, to communicate in words, but also can struggle with um, reading other people's um, body language. So that can lead to confusions. So if you kind of agree on quite simple ways to communicate to make it easy um, to say things and kind of make, make it easier to understand each other. I think that's one of the kind of biggest parts and make, make that easier for each person. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so you've exploded some of the myths there that the rope community might perpetuate. For example, that there are certain people that can't be tied. What are the other myths that the rope community perpetuates about tying diverse bodies? Um, sadly, yeah, there's still quite a lot. I mean, I've, yeah, I've been in the rope scene for about seven years and some of those myths just don't want to go away, um, which is kind of sad to see. I think the most common one is still that larger people, heavier people can't be suspended at all, that it's not safe. Or if you do suspend them, you have to use loads and loads of rope, lots of wraps, kind of halfway to mummification. Um, so that's a, that's a very common one. And the other one is sadly also still that man can't bottom for rope especially for more, you know, traditional styles that, you know, things like Naka style or um, Valtai style that you can't tie men in that style. That's, that's very common. Or even with that, that you can't tie larger, um, even larger women in that style. 
you know, that two styles can only be done if you have a very petite model. Um, and also very commonly that you need to be very fit and very flexible to bottom the throat. Like, especially the flexibility part, just it keeps coming up. That models, that, that people just think rope bottoming requires a huge amount of flexibility. Hmm. So what you're saying, Alexia, is that pretty much everybody can be a rope bottom if they want to. They don't need to feel limited just because of what body they have, right? Absolutely. I think I think rope is so much about the enjoyment and between both the rope top and the rope bottom. So if you find a style of rope that you enjoy, and I mean, there are so vast amount of different styles of rope out there that, you know, you should be able to find something that suits your body and your communication. And if you explore that style, there's always something you will be able to do no matter what your limitations are. I think that really, I haven't come across any style of rope that doesn't allow for modifications that can be adapted to literally any person. That, that's amazing. Yeah, that's such a, a positive message and we're very happy to share it today with our dear listeners. So moving on a bit, Alexia, uh, from the topic of diverse bodies into power exchange. So you said you are in a power exchange relationship with your partner, Little Boy Blue, um, but you also switch with each other in rope, right? Yes. So how does that work in terms of power exchange? Yeah, it might sound a bit strange to people because we really are in a 24 uh, 70s relationship. Um, you know, all of our day to day life still involves uh, very much our relationship is very much led by me. Um, and my partner tying me is more a form of service than necessarily him topping me. I mean, it's, I also teach him rope, so it's very much a kind of joint team experience. Um, but when he ties me for a scene, it's more that it's a service he's doing for me. That, that's amazing, Alexia, because pretty much since the beginning of the rope podcast, we've been telling people that the role you have in rope top versus bottom can be independent of your role in a power exchange and that dominant people can get tied by their submissive because they enjoy it. But so far, we didn't really have an example to give every time we made that argument. So now we can say, like Alexia and Little Boy Blue, every time we talk about this. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, my partner really enjoys it because he enjoys tying, but also because he knows how much I enjoy it. So. For him, it pleases his uh, submissive side because he is serving his dominance. So he really enjoys that part. Um, and for me, I can relax in rope. I can, and I can submit in rope, but I also still know I have a certain level of control because that never quite goes away, even, <laughs> even in that scene. But, um, as soon as the rope scene has finished, we're back in our dynamic. Um, and I don't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't impact, um, the rest of our dynamic at all. So I really don't see a problem at all switching, switching for rope. Yeah. And, uh, we very much, uh, support the idea that 
activities are independent of power exchange. Power exchange is about the relationship between the people and the activities that you do can be done in any uh, direction. Um, and so that would be something we would very much agree with. So tell us, what do you get from topping in rope? As you're a switch, we'd love to explore the two roles. I really do quite like being in control. Um, and I'm, I'm a sadist, so I do enjoy causing discomfort and pain. But generally, I would describe myself um, as a reaction junkie. So I just love seeing the reactions my bottom has. And I tie with people who have a huge range of reactions from um, getting very aroused on rope, um, from people laughing, giggling, uh, crying. I just, I enjoy having the power to cause these reactions and, and going on a journey. I mean, often a scene kind of develops on its own. It's not necessarily that I set out to make my rope bottom cry, just to kind of clarify this. It's just sometimes that's how the rope scene develops. You kind of, you know, you go on a journey, but you don't quite know what path you're going to take. And um, you don't always quite know what headspace your partner is in, but you are going to find out during the scene. And I love that every scene is always unique. Um, I often tie with the same people frequently, um, but it never gets boring. You know, every every single time it's different. Even if you do the same tie or the same suspension, um, it, it can turn out so differently. And and I really I love that that excitement and that kind of exchange of of emotions. Great. What about when you're on the bottom, when you are the person in the rope? What do you enjoy about that? I really enjoy letting go. So I think that might be a bit of a kind of cliche for a lot of people. Well, sometimes cliches are cliches for a reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But so, yeah, most of my life, I'm very much in control, you know, no matter if it's work or in our relationship. Um, my autism means that I mask a lot, so I try and hide my um, my autistic traits a lot to fit into society. So all of the time, I'm very much in control and very focused. Um, and I find with warp, it gives me a chance to take my masks off, to just feel, to be in the moment. I don't have to worry about things. I don't have to plan things. I can just be in the warp, just be present with my partner. And it's still, I'm very much at the beginning of my warp bottoming journey. It's something I will still exploring slowly, but that is, I, I really love that feeling. All right. That sounds absolutely lovely. Alexia, you have a lot of gorgeous uh, rope photos and recently one of your photos involving uh, water has been hugely popular in the Jade Rope contest on FetLife. Uh, can you talk to us a bit how you do rope photos in general and tell us a bit about that one photo in particular? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much. Um, my little boy Blue is a amateur photographer and he's been teaching me, so I'm I'm still learning. But it's I, I love photography for my artistic outlets. And I love combining it with warp. So I do 
do some unusual things with warp, like warp and water. I combine flowers and warp a lot and a lot of outdoor warp. Um, generally, most of my warp photos are actual warp scenes. So um, probably 90% of uh, my photos are from scenes. So we recently did shoots uh, for the... Um, magazine of the King Baku Society of Berlin for their um for their spring issue. We've we set out to do photos, but even though we set out to do a shoot, it still heavily ended up being play. Um especially with my partner. Um we do a lot of objectification and the photography is like a natural extension of that. He is like my canvas and I shape him to please me and I enjoy taking photos of it also from an exhibitionist point of view and a shame point of view. I like pointing out that I'm taking photos of him in this, you know, sometimes quite compromising position. Um, so it's, it's often very much a part of that, but sometimes we like the underwater one is that I have a vision in my head and I, seek out friends to make that kind of vision come reality. Often they are very heavily collaborations. It's my, all of my tying and kind of my photography. It's always conversations with the people. It's always collaborations. And um, the underwater one was very intense, especially as we didn't realize when we booked the place that the um, owners of, so it was done in a, essentially a giant fish tank awesome where do you where do i find one of those <laughs> um the, the, we have a special photo studio it's usually used for uh, mermaids mm -hmm. so we have professional mermaids in the uk Amazing. I, I think they're all over the world actually and um yeah they have fish tanks for them but we didn't realize the uh, owners of the studio would be present throughout the shoot like they knew what we were going to shoot but um uh, they knew it was going to be BDSM content and it would involve bondage. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't actually allow any actual tied hands, even though we knew that the bottom for the photo was an excellent swimmer. Mm -hmm. Um, so we had, so I had to get very creative to make things look like, um, the hands were tied, but the brand to comply with the safety of, um, of, of, of the studio, of the photo studio. Um, and we had to get quite creative using our weights and chains to help keep the model down to have enough time to actually take a photo. So, um, it was really good fun. We, um, also had two helpers with us. Um, any kind of shoots we do, which, uh, outside, we always take helpers with us. Um, just, you know, it's good to have people on hand for safety. And it's it's about the fun. So even with those shoots, yes, obviously, you know, especially for the model, I would like to end up with a nice photo that the model enjoys. Um, but we always do it with friends. It's always a lot of fun. It's always a lot of giggles involved. So even even if the photos didn't turn out amazing, we would still have the fun memories of the silly nonsense we got up to. <laughs>
And how do you decide to present different types of bodies and photos, given the diversity and, and the beauty that you're able to bring out? So that's, that's a really good question, a really difficult one I've been thinking about. So when, um, so I use Instagram a lot to showcase my photos. And when I originally started my Instagram account, I did it because I couldn't find any photos of men in rope. And I thought that was a real shame. And I generally thought the beauty of the male body didn't get celebrated a lot. Like I think at the moment in Western society, we very much focus on female beauty, not so much on male beauty. So I thought, oh, I set my Instagram up for that. Um, and then with time and, you know, tying up, I asked friends if I could put their photos up as well. And I've always got really lovely feedback from people saying, it's so good to see somebody like me in warp. That's why I started sharing photos of myself in warp. Like Jenny, I'm quite insecure about my body. And I've, I've never particularly liked photos of myself, but I thought, it's important for other people. I know how many people messaged me to say, I've always thought about hanging up my boyfriend, but I've never seen it. Thank you for sharing the photos. I feel more comfortable doing it now. So I thought, well, if I put photos out there of myself, it might help other people with my body and um, kind of my body has a lot of limitations that they go, okay, you know, I'm around a person who struggles to put her arms around her back. So maybe it helps them as well, you know, to see that. Um, but I don't deliberately go out to find diverse models because I really heavily just tie with friends because for me, the photography is very much secondary. I tie, my, tying people requires a connection with them. For me, Vope is a very intimate thing to do. So I wouldn't, compared to sex but it's it's like hugging or so I I don't do warp with professional models or I, I mean sometimes I do think oh should I go out and seek people out to spread the diversity but for me that because I'm not a, a professional artist doing it and you know I've really I purely tie for the pleasure of tying between the two people um, I've decided not to to seek out professional models in any kind and just continue kind of showcasing the people I, I happen to tie because they are my friends and, and I enjoy tying with them. That's really cool. Thank you so much, Alexia, for coming on the podcast today and telling us about body diversity and how everyone can be tied and also not only physical, but also uh, neurodiversity and so on and we talked about power exchange and I really enjoyed that uh, tidbit of uh, behind the scenes with the water tie and the, the giant fish tank and just just as a reminder dear listeners uh, if you're gonna play with rope underwater remember that human beings can't breathe water and please don't <laughs> drown your bottoms because we love rope <laughs> bottoms let's not kill them okay <laughs> and having helpers Absolutely. is definitely super useful in case of any any safety issue uh, coming up. Alexia, where can our listeners find you on the internet currently? So I have an Instagram account, which is uh, Alexia, um, un underscore on either side, and um, on FedLife as well, also un under Alexia. 
Perfect. And if uh, anyone has any questions um, or struggled in regards to uh, tying diverse bodies, please, you know, don't hesitate to message me. If I can help in any way with ideas, I will. Oh, wonderful. Amazing. So that's all from us today at The Rope Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and come friend us on our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. If you have a question related to rope, we'd love to answer it in one of our future episodes. Drop us a message on FetLife. And if you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, ropepodcast.com. In particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.